Mm -mm. Thank you, fellas. Boy, you know, I like to hear preachers preach like the enthusiasm they are portraying rightly represents the text. Well, (laughs) I like to hear singing like people really mean it. That was good. That reminds me of when I would put in, put in some of my you know, like SMS recordings and you know these men bellowing it out, but it's nice to see the facial expressions. They left, I was gonna ask them if they wanna travel with me because my brother-in-law is laid up for a little while with twins at their house. So we're gonna go to Matthew chapter 15, if you would, Matthew 15. Dr. Jim, thanks for the input to get me here to speak. I've really been grateful. I, I don't know what kind of blessing will be left behind, but I know for me there's been a blessing. And so thank you. Pastor, I thoroughly enjoyed the time with you. And um, today we spent, well, we went to get Chinese, and you know, I felt bad. It's a waste of a Chinese buffet. I had one plate. We just talked for hours, and it really was a couple hours. And I told him, your, your ministry reminds me of when I first went to my home church, Eagle Heights Baptist, and uh, I was drawn there just because of a great stand with a great spirit. That was the combination I wanted. I always wanted to be the kind of guy that would be in a, in a local church his whole life. And uh, I've lived in Kansas City now longer than I lived in New Jersey growing up. It's home, and I've been in the same church, and, you know, we've had good times, hard times, but there's something about church family. You're blessed here. I hope you'll take, um, you'll, I hope you'll be really appreciative of what God's given you. Um, senior guys last night enjoyed it. Of course, how can anything be bad at Culver's? And uh, so we sat, I think I had a milkshake, I don't remember. We sat and talked for over an hour, the senior ministerial guys. Well, I think they're all seniors. I should have had the wedding garment test. You know, you can't get in without the garment because they just kept showing up. And I, and I said, hey, I'll treat. And then another one. And, and word must have gotten out because we went from 8 to 10 to 20. I don't know how many went. But we had a really good, I'm just kidding. We had a really good time. I enjoyed talking shop with those guys. So I leave here refreshed. Thank you for what you've done for me. And uh, I'm praying that God's word will be a blessing to you. We're in Matthew 15 tonight. Since the conference is on forward on our knees, and I did not know that, But before I arrived, the Lord had burdened my heart to preach this particular message that I want to give you tonight. One day I was reading a teen devotional. It caught my attention because it was about George Mueller. I love George Mueller. Love love the testimony. And the message, the uh, essay was entitled, How Long Would You Pray? I thought, well, half hour, hour, I don't know. But it was about George Mueller and persistence in prayer. Listen to this. George Mueller was known as a man of prayer. He would pray and has testified how God would sometimes immediately reply to his need. I've often desired to have a prayer life like George Mueller. One day I came across this story. I believe I found the key to George Mueller's prayer life. The following is an excerpt from his diary. In November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land, on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years went by, and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. Yet these two remained unconverted. The fellow wrote the article, says... 36 years later, Mueller wrote that these two, sons of one of his friends, were still not saved. He wrote, but I hope in God, I pray on and look for the answer. They're not converted yet, but they will be. In 1897, over 50 years after he'd begun to pray, these two men were saved after Mueller died. Truly, Mueller understood what Paul meant when he said, without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. 
I have gone back to that account again and again and again. I don't know about you. I have relatives for whom I have prayed for over three decades. Two on that list have come to Christ so far. The majority have not. They are strongly religious. And you know what? Some of them are now in their late 80s. I have one who, very religious, she'll go to Mass five times a week, but has no idea if she's absolutely certain of going to heaven because she's trusting religion and not redemption to get her to Christ. And as we've talked and we prayed, you know what I know? I'm convinced more than ever they'll be saved. God wants them to be saved, and we're asking according to his will. And I want to give you a message tonight that I've entitled, Prayer That Prevails. Prayer That Prevails. Would you stand with me for one last time, Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a woman of Canaan uh, came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. His disciples came near and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It's not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. She said, Truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. This is yet another passage in Scripture that I must tell you stumped me. It was perplexing. I thought the way he speaks to her sounds rude. It just doesn't seem like Jesus. I mean, he's dismissive and then he's offensive. Now, I learned a long time ago, if the ways of God don't make sense, if they seem unjust, realize this, the problem is not with God. The problem's with our understanding of God. God's not the one on trial. We are. And so don't judge God unjustly. But I will tell you, I wrestled through this. And so I, again, I went back to the author. Okay, Lord, you wrote it. What do I need from this? Boy, the insights were such as only could be of he, of him, and they were life-changing. And I'd like to share them with you tonight. Father, teach us. Teach us to pray. The church theme is forward on our knees, and here we are in just the beginning of that theme, and already you've taught us much. I know, as I mentioned, Brother Jim's message helped me the other day. A lot of the students were talking about how much that helped. Today we looked in chapel at the model prayer, and there's just so much. There is so much in the Word so may we not just be academic students. May we be disciples of prayer. Teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Be seated. Appreciate you standing. I'd encourage you maybe jotting down some notes just because there are a number of observations. They come verse by verse here. But I want you to notice in um, verse 22, her recognition of the Savior's significance. Her recognition of the Savior's significance. Interesting, we're told that Jesus goes into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. That would be an interesting study for you. Those two cities are historically significant. Sidon was the oldest Phoenician city. The Philistines came from there. You may remember Jezebel's dad at one time was the king of Zidon. Okay, Sidon. They would be today in what we know as the country of Lebanon. So Beirut, Tripoli, Tyre, Sidon, they're all along the same Mediterranean coast there. I'd love to say more about it. You'll have to study it yourself, all right? But Tyre and Sidon, pagan culture, pagan territory. This is one of the only times Jesus ever ventured outside of the boundaries of Israel. As a child, you remember, he fled to Egypt. 
And then here he's outside of Israel, and why is he in Tyre inside? I don't know for sure. I would assume because there were many Jews that had moved up there. The Jews were people who would specialize in business. And so no doubt the gospel came to the Jew first. He's going to reach them. But when he gets to Tyre and Sidon, and again, this Sidon was Jezebel's dad's domain back in the day. The first person to come to him is not a Jew. It's a Gentile. And she comes out and she is pleading with him. And notice her recognition of the Savior's significance. First of all, we're told that she cried to him. The word cry is a cry of desperate dependence. I illustrate, uh, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This way, you think of a child gets lost and he's been separated from his parents. They're camping. He's in the woods overnight. He hears the hooting of the owls. He hears animals. He's scared to death. Search party comes out the next day. Bobby, Bobby. I want to tell you, Bobby spent a night lost in the woods. He isn't over there against the tree saying, well, if they really care about me, they'll find me. When he hears the search party, he says, I'm over here. That's the cry of desperate dependence. Being saved is not, oh yeah, I went through confirmation when I was 13 and I was added to the role of the church. It is a cry of desperate dependence upon God. I can't save myself, only he can save me. And this woman cries out to him with desperate dependence. James 5.16 tells us the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Do you know it it took two English words to translate one Greek word? Effectual fervent are both used to translate one word. Effectual has the idea of producing effect and fervent has the idea of bubbling over. In fact, I just read this today. Our friend Harold Vaughn, um, Evangelist Harold Vaughn, put together this book called Deep Fire. And uh, one of my friends gave me this book. And I read it devotionally along with my Bible reading every day. But boy, what a powerful couple of statements. And I read today, we should watch daily, continue instant in prayer, strengthen our supplications with arguments from God's word and promises, and mark how prayers speed. When we shoot an arrow, we look to its fall. When we send a ship to sea, we look for its return. When we sow, we look for a harvest. It is atheism to pray and not to wait in hope. A sincere Christian will pray, wait, strengthen his heart with the promises, and never leave praying and looking up till God gives him a gracious answer. Amen. Effectual fervent. We should be looking for answers to prayer. And as our friend Rick Flanders says, and I'm sure some of you have heard, God's intention is that Christians get regular answers to prayer. We should be getting our prayers answered. And so this woman comes and she cries. Notice, she addresses him, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. That's significant. Every Jew was a descendant of Abraham, but not every Jew was a son of David. In fact, um, through, through David came the line of the kings, except we're in the diaspora, we're in the dispersion. The, there's no more kingdom. There's no more king in Israel except a pagan king. So why does she address him, son of David? There's yet to be one fulfilled prophecy through that line. Who would come through David's line? The Messiah. Is it possible this woman knows something that many of the Jews had not deduced? That he is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. You know, the Bible says the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. Here's a Gentile woman who addresses him as son of David. And then she calls him Lord. And I want you to notice, of course, that's the term kurios, is uh, master, uh, the boss, the one who calls, calls the um, shots. She never deviates from calling him Lord. Three times she'll call him that. Now for you and me to pray, dear Lord, that's customary. This was not customary for her. And she calls him Lord out of reverence. And then notice this. She says, have mercy on me. She begs for mercy. Um, this is a rather funny illustration, but did any of you ever get, play the game Mercy? You lock hands with somebody maybe when you were a kid, and you try to bend their wrist back until they 
you know, grovel on the ground and pay. I know it's really sadistic, but has anybody ever played that game? Would you admit it? Okay. Wow. A lot of you. Okay. So I remember being on the bad end of that, right? And somebody bends your wrist back and then you're on the ground saying, mercy, mercy. Why? Mercy means I can't overpower you. I'm not in a position to negotiate with you. I'm not stronger than you are, but would you please withhold what I'm getting right now? When she comes claiming have mercy on me, she is in effect saying, I don't have any claims on you. Uh, you know, there's no way I can force you to do this. Would you please have mercy on me? And you and I realize that when we come to the Lord, he says, I want you to come boldly under the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I often think about how gracious God is. Esther, who was part of the king's harem, was very scared to approach Ahasuerus, who was technically her husband, because she knew when you came to the court, if the king didn't dip the royal scepter, you could have your head severed. You remember she went saying to the Jews, you fast and pray for me, I'll go before him. And thankfully the king dipped his scepter. You know, when we, become, when we come before God Almighty, we don't have to come with any fear and trepidation. He says, come boldly to the throne of grace. He says, I promise you'll obtain mercy. You'll find grace to help in time of need. Here's a woman who has no claims on Jesus, but she comes with greater confidence than many of us come to her own gracious Father in heaven. So, she calls him son of David. And then she says this. She says, Lord, she says, have mercy on me. But then she says, my daughter, she's grievously vexed with the devil. So what's the prayer request? My kid's demon-possessed. Would you solve it? If you found out that your child was demon-possessed, and I know there's some of you thinking, well, at times I wonder. But you know, I mean, if the kid really were demon-possessed, who would you call? Oh, I'd call the pastor. Pastor, you remember the class in college on how to deal with demon-possessed people? I don't remember that class. Well, who do you go to? Psychiatrist, psychologist? She knows who to go to. She goes to Jesus Christ. Powerful. You know, I, I remember reading the life story of Dawson Trotman. And um, he was a soul winner. He had a burden for evangelizing people. And he said, you know, I think so often we ask for trinkets and toys when we ought to be asking for continents. He said, what's the, what's the greatest thing you've asked God for lately? The Lord reminded me the other day. Uh, what have I been asking for God that's significant? What's, what's big? And not too long ago, the Lord put on my heart to pray for three particular groups of people that maybe I hadn't thought about praying for specifically. Chinese, Indians, and Muslims. You know why? Well, there are 1.4 billion Chinese and there are 1.2 billion Indians. The Lord must love Chinese and Indians. He made a lot of them. And then Muslims. Many of them have never, ever had a clear explanation of who God the Creator is and who His real Son is, Jesus Christ. That's how they were born. I began to think, why don't we pray for that? There's nothing too hard for God. I may never get to China. I may never get to India. I may not have a ministry to Muslims, but God can reach them. What are you asking God for lately? And let's begin to pray. And some of you know the stories of revival. I remember when heard the story of revival in Canada, the one up in Saskatoon, and, and Bill McLeod talks about it, and people in India started praying for them. They didn't even know how to say Saskatoon. And you know, others around the world started praying for revival in this western part of Canada. They didn't know why, just God put it on their heart. What's God put on your heart lately? Nothing's too hard for God. So her recognition of the Savior's significance. But then notice this, number two, his, and I'm speaking of the Savior, his reaction of apparent aloofness. His reaction of apparent aloofness. I try not to use outlines that are too wordy, and I, I don't want to speak above the, the average person's vocab, and, and many of you are fine with these words, but, you know, I, I was hesitant to use these terms, but there's a history behind it. 
My dad was a wordsmith. He was a general contractor, but he was a wordsmith. He would read a book, and if he didn't know the definition, he would look it up and write the definition in the margin of the book. It took him forever to read a book, but boy, it was well-defined when he was done. One day, we were riding somewhere, and uh, he said, how, I said, how was your meal with so-and-so? Some local politician, I think. He said, well, it was, it was okay. He said, I was just disappointed. He's rather aloof. And I said, what is aloof? <laughs> now, we were riding the car, otherwise I wouldn't have asked, because if we'd have been home, you know what he said? Go look it up. But we didn't have a dictionary around. So I, I said, what does aloof mean? He said, you don't know what aloof means? Well, uh, Dad, I think I learned it in school, but I don't remember. He said, well, aloof is the idea of condescending, looking down on another person, rather unattached emotionally because you know you're not in their league. And I thought, that is the word here. His reaction of apparent aloofness. Notice, she just pours out her heart. Look at verse 23. But he answered her, not a word. His disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I really struggle with that. The Lord seems to be rude. He seems to be dismissive. And I thought, that doesn't, that doesn't square with the compassionate Christ that I know. So how, do I, how does this jibe? I don't, I don't know how to make sense of that. And I asked the Lord, Lord, help me understand. And it's interesting how God will prompt your mind. I remembered years ago having read portions of a book, and I'm now rereading, called With Christ in the School of Prayer. Have any of you ever read Andrew Murray's book? Yeah, great, powerful book, worth reading. With Christ in the School of Prayer. And the concept came to me, the school of prayer. Yes. You know, I remember this about school. I didn't like it at the time, but if you're going to go from one uh, grade level to the next, you know, something had to happen. Along the way, you had to pass some tests. And it dawned on me, he's testing her. There are three major exams that this gal has given here, and she passes every one with an A+. Now, I want you to notice this. First of all, here under his apparent his reaction of apparent aloofness. I wrote down test number one, test of silence. Test of silence. Have any of you ever poured your heart out to God and felt like the heavens were brass? Like you were getting nowhere? Okay, I have. Has anybody else ever had that? You just feel like you're praying and praying. It's going nowhere. The test of silence. But then after he says nothing, she starts working on the disciples. Would you have them help me? And they go to him and say, Lord, she, now she's working on us. And he says, I'm not sent but the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Here's test number two, the test of shunning. The test of shunning. In effect, he says, not my department. Did you ever call a credit card company to question a charge? And, uh, you know, you got five or six options, and uh, I think I'm four. And then you got four or five other options, uh, three. And then you got another three options. And, uh, and then finally, some outsourced being comes on, hello, may I help you? And, you know, they don't even speak very good English you're just so grateful to be talking to a living, breathing being. And you say, well, here's the, and I don't think I, and, and they'll say, well, I'm sorry, sir, but I'm not authorized to help you. I spent all this time, you know, give me somebody who can help me. I've had that experience, can you tell? Have you ever had that experience? Nothing worse than going to God Almighty and feel like I'm getting nowhere. And then it's like I've been pushed aside. Ah, uh, if you're not going to help me, who will help me? The test of shunning. And it dawned on me, these are tests. And you know, if she were like a lot of people I knew, as soon as the Lord gave her, forgive me for the colloquial here, but the, the brush off, I would have been like, okay, forget it. You know, I tried, he doesn't answer. And I think that's where a lot of us never get out of kindergarten in prayer because we didn't get anywhere, we felt, and so we gave up. Let, let me give you in the middle of the message the summary statement of the entire message, please. Don't take no for an answer if no is not the answer. 
That's the key to the whole message tonight. Do not take no for an answer if no is not the answer. I think sometimes we just default to thinking, well, he just doesn't want to answer my prayer. That's not the answer. But the Lord will often teach us in prayer. We're with him in the school of prayer. So, it was the test of silence and the test of shunning. Now, we're not finished. There'll be one more in a minute. But I call that his reaction of apparent aloofness. But then notice this in verse 25. Number three is her response to presumed prejudice. Her response to presumed prejudice. She must thinking in her mind, be thinking in her mind, well, he, he's a Jew, I'm a Gentile, he doesn't want anything to do with me, oh well. What's her response to that? Verse 25. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Wow. Huh. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. Short, urgent, and to the point was this petition. As we grow earnest, our words usually become fewer. Have you ever been so burdened about something or someone that you couldn't do anything but say, Lord, help me. Lord. You know what it's to pray like with groanings which cannot be uttered because you were groaning with the Spirit of God. Oh, God. You ever pray with tears and you don't even know what else to say? God, I don't know what to do. That's where she was. Lord, help me. That's her response to presumed prejudice. Uh, that's persistence in prayer. But notice this. Number four is his reluctance despite a passionate plea. Oh, I'd be, amiss, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. The word worshiped is a really significant word. It's very picturesque. The idea is of uh, uh, a dog licking its master's fingers. And if you follow the, the analogy of the dog here, I think you'll see a theme weave through the scripture. Uh, how many of you own a dog? Does anybody have a dog at your house? Okay, how many of you have a really affectionate dog? You know, you come in the house and... <laughs> You know, and you ever have a bad day where you just don't want the dog to bother you and you kind of push the dog aside or, you know, the dog was bad. Bad dog. And you know what they do? <laughs> they come back, right? Loyal friend. That's why they're man's best friend because they're not fickle. They're not toward you like you are toward them sometimes. That's her response. The word worship always has to do with prostrating oneself or humbling oneself. Here it's the dog licking the master's fingers. When he just seemed to give her the royal beat down, if you will, she comes back, <laughs> Lord, Help me. What a picture. I think in America we're just so unaccustomed to humbling ourselves before God. I've appreciated your response to invitations. I don't think everybody should come forward at every invitation. But I don't see how anybody can go through months at a time without responding to some kind of invitation. I really believe that when God speaks to our heart, there's something spiritually therapeutic about bowing before the Lord our maker. This woman comes and she shows due reverence. No wonder she got her prayer answered. So her response to presumed prejudice brings us to number four. His reluctance despite a passionate plea. His reluctance despite a passionate plea. But he answered and said, it's not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Ow! Okay, this is test number three. I call this the test of scorn. The test of scorn. He went from silence to shunning to now, well, it, it wouldn't be appropriate to take the bread from children and give it to the dogs. Ow! Because what did Gentiles, I'm sorry, what did Jews call Gentiles? Dogs. Now, would it help if I told you that he used the word for puppy here, the diminutive term for dog? Oh, I doubt it. I mean, a dog's a dog. Even it's a puppy, but still, you're just a dog. The test of scorn. This is a really difficult one. Have you ever prayed, poured your heart out to God, and whether you verbalized it or not, you thought, well, I don't know why I bother praying. I mean, I prayed, and look where it got me. Be careful. That's where she could easily have been. 
He, and this is, the, this is his reluct, seemingly reluctance despite a passionate plea. Here's what Spurgeon said about this particular part of the passage. How hard his language. How unlike our Lord's usual self, yet how true. How unanswerable. Truly, it's not meek to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. The blessing sought here is like bread for children. And the Canaanites were no more members of the chosen family than so many dogs. Their heathen character made them like dogs as to uncleanness. For generations they had known no more of the true God than the dogs which roamed the streets. Well, that's true. But boy, if I'm in that woman's place, I'm thinking I'm out of here. Three tests. They got tougher and tougher. And she passes everyone with an A+. Because note now, in verse number 27, number five here, her resolution of persistent prayer. Her resolution of persistent prayer. She said, truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Oh, wow. She's a Gentile. And after what seemed to be dismissiveness on his part and denunciation on his part, what does she say? You know, you're right, Lord. You know, it, it really isn't, it wouldn't be right for you to take bread from your children and give it to dogs. But she said, but you know, but even dogs eat crumbs from the master's table. Oh. And I thought to myself, what a response. What had she been asking God to do? Heal her demon-possessed daughter. If you and I saw a demonic deliverance in direct answer to prayer, we'd say, wow, what an answer. You know what she says? Lord, to you, that's like crumbs off the table. I'm not asking you to deprive your people of anything. I'm just asking you to do what's so simple for you to do. Isn't that amazing? Her persistence, her resolution of persistent prayer. But finally, his reply, number six, his reply to resolute reliance. His reply to resolute reliance. Then, I circled the word then. Then, after she'd passed these tests, then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, Great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. You know, it's, it's encouraging to me. There are only two times Jesus said to someone in the Bible, Great is thy faith. She is a Gentile woman. Who's the other fellow to whom he said that in the New Testament? The Roman centurion. Both were Gentiles. I've not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. You know, there are times I felt like, I'm not George Mueller. I mean, I'm not, I'm not Hudson Taylor. I'm Rich Tozer. But you know what? George Mueller didn't get his answer to prayer because he was George Mueller. Hudson Taylor didn't get answers to prayer because he was Hudson Taylor. I love what Mueller's son-in-law said one day after Mueller had died. He was giving a tour of the Mueller orphanages to a woman. I, I think she was a potential donor to the ministry. And she's looking at all these stone buildings in Bristol, England there and saying, my, my, it just must take an incredible amount of faith to sustain all this. And he rebuked her. He said, my dear woman, Great faith in a weak plank will land to me in the creek. But weak faith in a strong plank will carry me over the creek. It's not the greatness of our faith. It's the greatness of our God who does what you see here. That is well said. Have faith in God. It's not faith in my faith in God. It's to have faith in God. One of my brother-in-law sent me an article or an excerpt from a book. This happens to be the book uh, Prayer of the Great Adventure by David Jeremiah. I've not read the book, but this chapter called It Pays to Pray. This is one of the best illustrations I've seen about persistent prayer. Roger Sims, hitchhiking his way home, would never forget the date. 
May 7th. His heavy suitcase made Roger tired. He was anxious to take off his army uniform once and for all. Flashing the hitchhiking sign to an oncoming car, he lost hope when he saw that it was a black, a black sleek, new Cadillac. To his surprise, the car, door, the car stopped. The passenger door opened. Roger ran toward the car, tossed his suitcase in the back, and then thanked the handsome, well-dressed man as he slid into the front seat. Going home for keeps? Oh, sure am, Roger replied. Well, you're in luck if you're heading to Chicago. Oh, Chicago, well, uh, not quite that far. Do you live there? Well, my name's Hanover. I have a business there. After talking about many things, Roger, who was a Christian, felt compelled to witness to this 50-something, apparently successful businessman about Christ. But he kept putting it off till he realized he was now just 30 minutes from his house. It was now or never, so Roger cleared his throat. Um, Mr. Hanover, I'd like to talk to you about something really important. He then proceeded to explain the way of salvation, ultimately asking Mr. Hanover if he'd like to receive Christ as his Savior. To Roger's astonishment, the Cadillac pulled over to the side of the road. He thought he was about to be ejected from the car. But instead, that businessman bowed his head and received Christ. He then thanked Roger. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Five years went by. Roger married, had a two-year-old son, and a business of his own. Packing his suitcase for a business trip to Chicago, he found the small white business card Hanover had given him five years earlier. In Chicago, he decided to look up Hanover Enterprises. A receptionist told him it would be impossible to see Mr. Hanover, but he could see Mrs. Hanover if he'd like. A little confused about what was going on, he was ushered into a lovely office and found himself facing a keen-eyed woman in her 50s. She extended her hand. You knew my husband? Roger told her how her husband had given him a ride when he was hitchhiking home after the war. Can you tell me when that was? Oh, yes, ma'am. May 7th. I'll never forget. The day I was discharged from the army. May 7th. Anything special about that day? Roger hesitated. Should he mention his witness? Since he'd come so far, he thought he might as well take the plunge. Well, uh, Mrs. Hanover, you see, I, I'm a Christian. I explained the gospel to your husband. He, he pulled over to the side of the road. He, he wept against the steering wheel. <laughs> Ma'am, he, he gave his life to Jesus Christ that day. Explosive sobs shook the woman's body. Getting a grip on herself, she said... I had prayed for my husband's salvation for years. I, I believe that God would save him. Um, Mrs. Hanover, where is your husband? He's dead, she said, now struggling with the words. He was in a car crash after he let you out of that car. He never made it home that day. Now sobbing nearly uncontrollably, she said, I stopped living for God five years ago because I thought God had not kept his word. Wow. And in God's kindness, God had sent her the very man that had led her husband to Jesus Christ. Now I want you to think about this. What if she had never met Roger Sims? When she got to heaven, would she have been in for a surprise? Because there, after living out of sorts with God for all those months and years, was the husband that God had saved in answer to her prayer.
Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. It pays to pray. And we need to learn to pray big prayers to a big God looking for big answers. Father, I thank you for the message tonight. Thank you for the example in Scripture. Thank you for a more current example post-World War II. And thank you for countless examples that many of us could come up with on our own. Lord, we don't just want to read about answers to prayer. We want to experience them. Not because we're wanting to be entertained. We want you to be made big in our sight. We want you to be glorified in our lives. And the Lord Jesus said, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Help us to pray big prayers to our big God, looking for big answers. Would you stand with me as our heads are bowed? I'm going to ask you not for a raise of hands, but if tonight you say, boy, I'll tell you what, I needed something in that message. Would you just come and find a spot before God tonight and say, Lord, you know what I need. i, I got to get back to praying. I need to start praying. I need to quit. I've given up. I need to reinstitute praying for somebody, whatever it is. Mary Faith, I called you Mary today. Sorry about that. Is Mary Faith place for us tonight. Would you come? Somebody for whom you're praying. Somebody you need to get back to praying for. Maybe you just need to tell God, Lord, I'm sorry. I have been out of sorts with you because I've been, frankly, upset with you. It's because I judged you based on what I understood, and you're not the one on trial. God, I am. While folks are coming, I want to ask you this. Have you ever prayed the most important prayer a person can pray? You might be thinking, well, now, Rich, that would... I mean, who's to qualify that? I mean, what's, who's going to quantify the most important prayer? Well... I know what you're thinking. There were different ways it was worded in the scripture. One guy said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. One of the thieves dying with Jesus on the cross later repented and said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. The most important prayer a person can ever pray is a person for the salvation that Jesus Christ offers. You must be born again. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In fact, the Bible says it this way. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He says, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. So a gift is provided, but it must be received. How do you receive that gift? Well, the Bible says, repent, realize you're a sinner, you're a transgressor, you're guilty. And be born again. Receive Christ. How? You're not saved by repenting. You're saved by relying upon Jesus Christ. The repentance is the recognition, I'm guilty. There's nothing I can do. But the reliance is the means of salvation. I believe Jesus and him alone. Only he can save me. He died on the cross for my sins. He was buried. He rose again. How do I receive that gift? Call upon him. If you'll call upon him in simple faith, he'll save you. How many of you tonight can say, thank God he answered that prayer in my life. I prayed and he saved me and I know it. Would you hold up your hand? I know I'll go to heaven. The Lord has saved me. Amen. Many hands. You may put them down. Is there anyone tonight you'd say, Rich, I don't know. I, I don't know for sure I'd go to heaven. I don't know where I stand with God. Would you pray for me? I want to know how to find God's forgiveness. I want to know that after I die someday or after I leave this world, I, I'll be with God. 
And I don't know that right now. Pray for me. I, I wouldn't embarrass you, but would you let me pray for you? Would you hold up your hand? I, I won't call you out. I won't, I won't single you out. But you, you and God and I will know for whom I'm praying. Pray for me. I don't know if I'd go to heaven. I don't know where I stand with God. Is there anybody like that tonight? I'm looking around. I don't know. Not sure I'd go to heaven. If you're not sure, we'd love to sit down with you and show you from the pages of the Bible what Jesus said about what he did to save you. His saving you has nothing to do with what you do. Even the, even the recognition of your sinfulness, that doesn't save you. It's your reliance upon who he is. That's what saves you. We'd love to help you tonight and show you how to be saved. Pastor, thank you, brother. Amen. You may look this way. Thank the Lord for just exactly right message for us right now. <clears throat> and I uh, thank the Lord for the clarity tonight. And I do encourage you, I would go home if the Lord touched your heart about where you've given up or some response, <clears throat> nail it down, write it down, and get back to, to what God had burned your heart. God answers prayer. And he's just looking for us to trust him. Well, Brother Sozer, thank you for your faithful service to us. It's been a joy and delight to have you here. And uh, thank you for giving of yourself. I do want to encourage you, if God specifically work in your heart, uh, just quickly let the evangelists know. And it's always a blessing for them to hear. And uh, we're just thankful for his ministry. I, uh, I trust you do have a list of folks that have ministered to you that you keep in, periodically to pray for. It does make a difference. And I thank the Lord for Brother Tozer. I would encourage you to add that to add him to your list and uh, his faithful ministry. Well, we've got folks we'll be praying for throughout these next uh, months on our top five and our uh, different connection lists for our Bible studies. Folks, those are not just things we're doing. That's serious business. This church can literally pray hundreds into the kingdom in just the next months, if we will. And uh, I'm excited about what the Lord wants to do. So I do encourage you, if at all possible, be here 8.30 on Saturday morning. So we'll look forward uh, to that time. All right, Brother Swanson, would you come close us in prayer, please? <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our dear brother here. We thank you how you, you led him here to feed us, and we have been fed. Lord, I pray with that nourishment now we would go forward on our knees and that we would be encouraged to know that you answer prayer and you delight to do so. Lord, I pray that you take him from here, and I pray you'd encourage him and bless his ministry. And Lord, we pray that as we move forward, we would be thoughtful in prayer for Shano, and Lord, for Aquia and all of the other outreaches that we have. Lord, keep us faithful in prayer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.